With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 21 years after an upstate New York college student vanishes seemingly without a trace, a new iHeartRadio original podcast sheds new light on the disappearance of Suzanne Lyle. I'm Phoebe LaFave, and this is Upstate Unsolved. Listen on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you get podcasts. Now, your host, Ken Brew, on News Radio 700 WLW. Uh, here we go again in Washington. You know, this is this, the, the impeachment thing, you know, the, the, the thing that I, I wonder about the most. How much revenue are the local television stations here in Cincinnati losing by televising this stuff? Because they can't run their access programs, which means they can't run their commercials in the access programs. You know, things like uh, Kelly and Michael or Kelly and whoever, who's ever on there with Kelly Ripa. And the view and all that. I mean, how much money are they losing by televising this stuff? You know, the news departments in these television stations are saying, yeah, this is what we ought to do. This is news. This is big. Meanwhile, the sales guys upstairs, all they're looking for are their Christmas bonuses. And they're thinking, oh, my gosh, where is our revenue going? Welcome to the show, 909. Ken Bruin for Scott Sloan. Did you see, did the University of Cincinnati really get hosed on its bowl berth? I mean, raise your hand. How many of you UC fans are going to Birmingham on January the 2nd? No, no. How many, really and truly, how many want to spend New Year's Eve on in Birmingham, Alabama? And if it wasn't the Birmingham Bowl, where should it have been for the UC Bearcats? Standing by as a man who knows everything, and whether or not, the University of Cincinnati really and truly got hosed by the uh, bowl selection committees. Is a guy so charged with covering college football for the SportingNews.com? He is Bill Bender. Bill, welcome to 700 WLW, and how are you on this glorious Monday? I'm doing well, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Are you going to Birmingham to witness <laughs> firsthand the University of Cincinnati against a team that has no head coach, Boston College, two days after New Year's Day. Are you, have you booked your flight yet? Uh, this is, no, I won't be there. Uh, this is the problem. With what? You're not going? Season. You're not going? I, 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 yeah, Sporting News isn't floating that one day after. Um, problem with 40 bowl games is you have this happen. Where, where you, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, I like, I like watching as much football as possible, but I've always contended, Ken, that the, the number of bowl games should be between 25 and 30. Mm-hmm. Um, Cincinnati gets a better matchup in that regard. Um, there's probably not as many American Athletic Conference teams to feed. And, um, I, you know, if you're going to match up group of five teams, it, it, match them up with, I don't know, somebody like Central Michigan that, that was the runner-up in the MAC. Those mm-hmm. would be better ball games. Well, here you go. Uh, and and I, I don't know. Anything about what these bowls pay, I know the majority of these bowls are paid for by ESPN money. But, I mean, right out of the chute, you got Buffalo and Charlotte at the Makers Wanted Bahamas Bowl. If I was the University of Cincinnati, I'd just fly there. 
I just get on a plane and just fly there and say, who wants to play us? Or we got next after Buffalo's done with Charlotte. I mean, my gosh, they're sending Buffalo and Charlotte to the Bahamas, and they're sending Cincinnati, which up until about 6.30 on Saturday night looked like it could be going to the Cotton Bowl. How does this happen? Yeah, I mean, this this is the casualties of losing some of those conference championship games. I will say for Charlotte, though, that, that's a fledgling program. Good for them that they did get to a bowl game, um, but but they did take a spot. So I always tell people, as you know, I do the bowl projections yes, for us every week at Sporting right. News, right. and I get some interesting emails, and I always tell people at the end of the day, you know, Michigan probably shouldn't be in the Citrus Bowl, but – they couldn't pass up Michigan, Alabama, and the, I bet you that game does. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. I bet you the Citrus Bowl has more viewers than the Cotton Bowl between Penn State and Memphis. No oh, doubt yeah. about it. I would, I would too. I mean, I, Penn State's a good team, no question about it. But I'm, I mean, there's no real interest in Michigan. It could be. It could be Harbaugh's last game. Who knows? You don't know what, what, what the drama is. How much does, does how a team, quote-unquote, travels with its fans dictate what bowl games want or where they want to send these teams? Oh, I think it matters. I mean, with, 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 with Wisconsin, for example, they uh, put on a pretty good showing in the Big Ten championship game. They're Penn State fans, Matt, but they're not in the Rose Bowl. But I, I kind of figured out that, Wisconsin was probably going to the Rose Bowl based on how they played in the first half against Ohio State. They yeah. got rewarded for getting to the Big Ten championship game, and they traveled. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's the effect of a Michigan. That's the effect of, you know, a Texas that probably got a better bowl game than they deserve. And, and, and this happens all the time in bowl season. Now, some people think it happens with the college football playoff. I'm not there on that. I think the committee caught a break this, this year because – there wasn't a compelling five. You know, they got the right four by default. Right. I want to get into that in a second. But, I mean, okay, uh, what you just said was that the these these bowl games or the people that assign these bowl games or whatever it may be, they, they see how a team travels and with its fans. Well, my gosh, Bill, you got Boston College that doesn't have a head coach. I don't know how they travel. I've seen some Boston College games on and off over the last decade. There doesn't seem to be a real demand for Boston College tickets, even in Boston. And they match them up. They put Cincinnati up against this team and sent it to Birmingham. So they must think that Cincinnati and its fans don't travel very well. That's the only thing I could think of there. It does. and It feels that way. These teams were in the Big East together, were they? I think, at some point? Uh, no, they were. No, I think by the time Cincinnati got there, BC was gone. Okay. I think, yeah. BC had left by then. That's yeah. what it felt like to me. I was like, is this a Big East Tuesday nighter or uh, yeah. you know, something like that? But um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's, you know, I always tell people this time of year bowl, bowl games mean something different to everybody, but it's really tough to find meaning when you don't have your head coach. It's one of my best, biggest pet peeves of this part of the season. Is I get it, you know, you got to go to your other school, but I'm also a proponent of finishing the season. Like Mike Norvell, for example, at least he's finishing it out at Memphis, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, yes, and and obviously we went through that here in Cincinnati uh, ten years ago with Brian Kelly. Um, look, uh, I mean, when I when you get right down to it, I don't want to hear Mike Oresco, the commissioner of the American Athletic Conference, ever open his mouth again about being 
a power six team because he's not. If he's got arguably his second best team going to Birmingham at 3.30 in the afternoon on January the 2nd, the American Athletic Conference is not, is not, is not for a third time a power six conference. Nobody says power six against him. This guy's got to shut his mouth about that, doesn't he? Well, I think one of the problems is I like, I like football in the conference, obviously. I think, you know, it's improved. But one of the things they're having trouble with is holding on to the coaches. You know, Mike Norvell is another example. Yeah. Good coach wins conference leaves. Tom Herman did that. Um, you know, and they've had a few others that they've had a hard time holding on to. So, I mean, Luke Fickle will probably have that debate at some point. I figured I thought he might get chased around this this cycle. I, I think when there's a Big Ten opening that he wants, if he wants to get back in the Big Ten, that'll be the next challenge for the Bearcats to hold on to him. And uh, and and honestly, Bill, if you're you said, well, we could stand twenty less bowl games. I, I'm like you. I can watch college football from now through July. I I, I love college football. It's my favorite kind of football, uh, and I'll watch. I'll I'll watch Georgia Southern and Liberty and the Mortgage Cure Bowl. I'll watch Kent against Utah State. I'll watch any of these games. I don't gamble. I just like college football. I like kids doing stuff that they, you know, you look at them and you say, "Man, I got this thing figured out." And the next thing you know, you don't. But but the fact of the matter is, other than maybe ten teams in this country anymore, ten at most. Um, no other team has a chance to win a national championship. So really, when I complain about Boston College and Cincinnati, I mean, look at Iowa State and Notre Dame in the Camping World Bowl or Illinois and Cal in the Red Box Bowl or whatever these bowl games are, we've reached a point in college football that there is the haves, and the haves aren't the Power Five conferences. They're the top ten teams in this country, and the have-nots, which are the rest of the Power Five that, frankly, have no shot of winning a national championship, and the Group of Five, which will never win a national championship. So, I mean, we can I can complain all about about Birmingham on January the second or third or whatever it is. Um, it really doesn't matter once you get past those top ten teams, does it? Well, I'm writing about that this morning. That if you look at the college football playoff history, there have been 11 schools that have made the playoff. 11 schools in six years. If you look at the NFL and can prop that up against conference championship weekend, which is the final four in the last five years, and that doesn't even include this year, 15 different teams have played in it. Only two teams in the NFL have played in conference championship weekend more than once the last five years. I bet you can all guess one, New England, no. uh, Green Bay, Green Bay is the other one. They've lost two championship games in the last five years. So no. it's a big reason why the NFL just, has this thing figured out in college football still looking for the right model is because their postseason is good with the exception of the seeding and um, conference championship weekend, the NFL is infinitely more interesting than the college football playoffs semifinals. I hate saying it like that, Ken, but yeah. it's the truth. Bill Bender from the sporting news, our guest, we're talking about Cincinnati getting banished to Birmingham. And then now I want to get into the, uh, the playoffs. Uh, did Ohio state get hosed? Uh, you, I think you, as late as yesterday morning, said one bad half of football against Wisconsin shouldn't take them out of the number one seed, but here they are. They're not, and they have to play a team that I think may be the most complete team in college football right now, Clemson. So the question is, why did Ohio State get penalized for one bad half of football against Wisconsin? Well, because LSU looked good against Georgia. I, you know, I, I think they were pretty even. I don't think one got hosed. I think it was a tough decision for the committee. Ohio State did have a complete resume, but so did LSU. Like, for example, I, I would argue this, that 
the Texas win at the time, everybody's talking about that. At the mm-hmm. time, that was a different Texas team. Mm-hmm. They were all in. They hadn't lost. It was their biggest home game in years. And so, to me, and, and your listeners might disagree, I think beating Texas on the road weighs a little bit more than beating Miami at home. Miami of Ohio. That yeah, is. no. So, no, I, I, I think that's a rational statement. There's no question about that. Right. Absolutely. Rational statement. So, yeah, and they beat Alabama, and Joe Burrow looks – Pretty darn good. They, they they looked good against Georgia. Georgia was beat up a little bit, but they looked good doing it. And I think they're, you know, for Ohio State, it is this was the big thing that both teams were trying to not play Clemson first, and that that to me speaks more about Clemson. I think sure. they are right there with Ohio State and LSU. And the compelling part to me is all three of those teams are capable of winning it. And you know, Oklahoma is a good team too. This playoff can. All four teams average more than 40 points per game yeah. and 500 yards of offense. Yep, yep. That tells me to get a couple stops or a couple turnovers, you might be okay. You might be okay. I don't think Oklahoma can. I don't think Oklahoma can keep up defensively with the other three. Personal opinion. I think LSU handles Oklahoma. Ohio State, Clemson. I don't know what the line is right now. It was under three the last time I looked, but I think that's going to be a handful for Ohio State. But I think when the smoke clears, I think you got LSU and Ohio State. And maybe that's what the country wants to see anyway. Joe Burrow against that defense at Ohio State. Does Joe Burrow come to the Bengals? Is it Chase Young? Who are they going to take? I think certainly there's that myopic view for the for the folks here in Cincinnati. But for the rest of the country, um, I, I think that's what they want to see anyway. I think they want to see LSU and Ohio State. I may be wrong on that. Don't mean to sell Clemson short. But I think that's. I think when the dust settles, I think that's what we're going to get. That'll be fun. Uh, and, you know, I think... Either way, you get a pretty good title game. I do like LSU against Oklahoma. Mm. I will probably pick Clemson to beat Ohio State. I think the one reason why, I think Trevor Lawrence is going to be able to throw over the top against them, and they've got skilled position guys that will challenge Ohio State. And I want to see what's changed. Last time they played, I couldn't have been more wrong. Can I pick Ohio State to win big? So maybe your listeners will appreciate that. Maybe I'll be big wrong this time, too, and Ohio State will end up beating Clemson. Well, I'll tell you what I was. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Very upset when you came on the air today, Bill. You've settled me down a little bit. I still don't like Birmingham for the Bearcats. I think it's a major, major slap in the face. But what are you going to do? Life goes on. You go play the game. You send your seniors out with a with a nice bowl game. You get a win, and you move on if you're Luke Fickle. But I, I'll tell you what. It, it, last night, I was, I, I was literally, I had to calm myself down so much last night that I, I, I almost didn't get to sleep. But you've made me feel better today, Bill, and I appreciate that. Well, I, I had to coach my son's third grade team. We lost by thirty yesterday. So we, we, just, we just calmed each other down, Ken. All right, we're good. Oh, yeah. You thought Freddie Kitchens had problems? Uh, Bill, thank you so much. <laughs> Bill Bender, Sporting News. We appreciate it. Hey, you're the best. Thanks so much. Yeah. Ah, Birmingham. Come on. How many people are going to go to Birmingham to watch UC play in that bowl game? I mean, just come on. Rough estimate. I think you'll get family members. I think you'll get uh, you'll get the real diehard UC fans. I think you're going to get a lot of people that travel down there. Maybe New Year's Day, 
I don't sense a lot of UC fans are going to stay, go, to, go to Birmingham for New Year's Eve. And I'm not running down Birmingham. I mean, it's just, it's a random city in the South. It's just, there it is. And, the, you know, college football is huge down there. And they get, you know, they, they, can, they can sell maybe some local tickets. But I'll guarantee you when they pan the stands down there, there's going to be friends and loved ones there. You're going to have sections available. Now, if they had sent Cincinnati to the Bahamas, different story. Send them to the, the uh, Music City Bowl in Nashville. Different story. Send them, Mike, yeah, going to Memphis three games in a row is better than going to Birmingham. Even you got to play in that godforsaken Liberty Bowl one more time. See, now I get Bill back on the phone. I'm all worked up. 923 News Radio, 700 WLW. 700 WLW. Uh, welcome back. Ken Brew for Scott Sloan. Little gold on the ceiling. I love this song. Black Keys. I think it was 2012 El Camino came out. Saw an interview that Dan Auerbach did. He said, uh, you know, it's got these gospel, it's kind of this gospel effect with these background singers. He said he just, you know, went out on the street and brought in like three local women. He said, you want to sing on this record? Why not, you know? Remember Pizza Hut tried to use this in a commercial, and they, the Black Keys sued them? Yeah, they had to yank it. Yeah. You can't sample music in a commercial unless the people that made the music said it's okay. Yeah. My producer, Slippin' Jimmy, said, yeah, the NCAA used it, but I'm sure they played the music right. Pizza Hut didn't come up with enough pepperoni for that one. Rain and gusty winds. Gusty winds, the man said. High of 56 today. Rain at times tonight, mixing with some snow with a low of 37. Then tomorrow, cloudy, but the temperatures are going to right on down off the cliff and be in the lower 30s by late afternoon. Sunny and cold on Wednesday, 35 for the high. We are at 50. 50 degrees at the Tri-State Severe Weather Station News Radio, 700 WLW. The Bengals yesterday... What are you doing rolling Andy Dalton on fourth and two? And Joe Mixon, it ain't about you, bud. What's about you is running the ball, not getting into some head-slapping thing. Come on, man. We'll get into that next. Down the road, Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits is going to check in with us. Something tells me I'm into something good. On 700 WLW. Well, if you were tuned in yesterday... And as bad as the Bengals are, they still get like half the available audience on television when they play on a Sunday. You know exactly what happened up in Cleveland. See, that's called hitting the post in radio parlance. 27-19 was the final. Only a late field goal made it that close. Uh, and the Browns, if they would stop trying to make Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry happy and get back to doing what they do best, which is running the football, they would have beaten a lot more than just six teams this season. But here they were yesterday beating the Bengals 27-19. to Now, someone who understands what this is all about is a man, in my opinion, who is the best Bengals player ever to wear the number 85. 
You don't think Curtis, uh, Isaac Curtis is listening, do you? Probably not. But I love Tim McGee, and I'm not shy about it. He's standing by you on the AcuteHearingCenters.com hotline. Good morning, Timothy. How are you? I am doing good, Kenny. How are you? You don't think Isaac Curtis is listening, do you? Or Chad? Uh, I don't care about. I don't care about Chad. (laughs) Chad's third place when it comes to 85. I'll let you and Isaac battle it out over number one. How about that? All right. When I when when I talk to him, I'll make I'll I'll make sure I mention that to him. Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm sure you will. Uh, look, I, 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 I look at Freddie Kitchens. He has the uh, the coach at Cleveland. He has the look of a coach that should be one and done. He probably won't be because the general manager hired him in the offseason. It's awfully difficult to admit you have an ugly baby, but that's that's what Freddie, Freddie Kitchens is. But the Browns did everything in the first half of that game to hand it to the Bengals, and the Bengals wouldn't take it from them. And that's what's frustrating here. It's like the play calling inside the the red zone, the penalties, uh, this, this is just a poor reflection on that coaching staff, is it not? Oh, there's, there's no question about it. And, and to your point, you just said something that, uh, that's kind of fascinating to me in that you critique, people critique Freddie Kitchens' performance as a coach and said he should be one and done. But at the same time, Freddie Kitchens won the game. Mm-hmm. They've won six games, and the Bengals won one game, but we're not having the same conversation. Not saying I'm advocating to fire Zach Taylor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying, isn't it totally unacceptable how our Cincinnati base has, I guess, come to grips with losing, and there's no expectation. There's no one-and-done thought process. There's no the bar is here. This is where we're going to meet. Yeah. No. And and what you saw is I, I, I saw the – when I witnessed, Kenny, the 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 first and goal on the two-yard line, <laughs> and as soon as I saw Andy take the snap, yeah. I, it, it just – it just goes – it defies common – Sense, logic, basic, simple, just you have a guy in the backfield. His name is Joe Mixon. Mm-hmm. You, me, and the rest of the staff at the station could not stop him. And we sure in the hell, if we were lucky enough to stop him once, we're not stopping him four times. No, and, and here, here to your point, you're talking about the third quarter. This is very much a game. Cleveland's up only eight. And it's first and goal on the two. Dalton sacked for four yards. Then the next time he throws the ball or attempts to, to Gio Bernard, why wasn't Mixon in the game? Why was Bernard in the game? And then on third and ten, he thinks the best the best option for him is throwing to Stanley Morgan. I mean, come on, man. I mean, what? first of all, why isn't Mixon in the game? Second of all, Stanley Morgan? Are you kidding me? Come on. It's maybe he thought it was the Stanley Morgan that was with the New England Patriots years ago. <laughs> he might have. That, that was an imposter. But and and yet and still, when they were in the ball game, they ran a quarterback draw. Yep. On a fourth down with Andy Dalton. <laughs> uh, again, now listen, I I will give credit where credit is due. The Bengals in the first quarter of every game, but maybe one or two, has come out and with a level of energy, mm-hmm. with a level of excitement, with a level that we're trying to win this football game. So Zach is definitely getting them prepared to come out, and they're playing. I yeah. get that. But as far as the game plans and the execution, it is poor at best. And this is 
second, third, fourth game where the team was handing them a win. You go back to the Pittsburgh Steelers game, Kenny Brew. Yeah. Pittsburgh, was, they played their scout team. I know. I know. And if you start Andy Dalt or put him in in the last drive or the second half, you got another win. So, you know, we talked about this on the postgame last night, Ken, and we, we just can't figure out what direction, if any, it just seems like they're a dog chasing his tail, and they, they just don't have any sense of direction or chemistry or identity. Well, the, 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 the play that you're mentioning about Dalton on a draw, this, again, was an eight-point game in the fourth quarter. They're on a drive that was about a seven-minute seven and 15-second uh, drive. And on fourth and, and fourth and four, again, with Joe Mixon, again with Joe Mixon, uh, not getting the ball. They have Dalton on a draw. Now, I like Andy Dalton. I think he's a tough guy. I think he spins a nice ball. I think he comes off as kind of like a gee whiz guy. But the fact of the matter is, I think he's a tough guy. But uh, he's not that, – that doesn't put him in a position to win. It puts him in a position to fail. It puts the team in a position to fail. And I'll fold back to something – that, that really and truly, I think, is fundamentally wrong with the way that this team is set up. The head coach, who is a head coach for the first time in his life, who's never been a coordinator of any note except one year at the University of Cincinnati and on an interim basis in Miami, the head coach is calling his own plays. It, 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 that, somebody above him, before they hired him, before they got through the end of that interview process, had to make a determination that this guy was going to get a seasoned offensive coordinator who would coordinate and call the plays. And I think, again, like Dalton was set up to fail on that play, Zach Taylor is set up to fail by that dynamic on his coaching staff. Would you agree with me? Oh, 100%. And when when I talk to many of the coaches, and I know a few GMs and, and owners around the league, that's, that's the head-scratcher right there, how he received a dual role, especially as a first-year coach with zero experience, to put that even on a seasoned coach, a coach that's been around, say, Marvin Lewis when he was here. Marvin didn't call the defense. Yes, he may have had some input, but you are managing. You are the CEO of game day. There are so many things that goes on dynamically during a football game, and now you're coaching and what happens in that case, and we see how bad and poor the defense is, so therefore you're giving the defense zero attention. You have basically told the defensive coordinator you're on your own. I'm going to run the offense. You're going to run the defense, and you run the special team. And that's not working out by no stretch of the imagination. But who has to be held accountable for to that? That has to be maybe Katie and Troy, who did the interview, and whoever, if Duke was in on the interview, whoever was on the interview, that guy gave them a presentation that just knocked them out, and he convinced them somehow, some way, that he is capable of calling plays and managing the team. Now, moving forward, here's the most part. We know what this year is about. What changes will he make, the necessary changes on the defensive side, considering they're damn near last in the NFL, and will he make changes to look himself in the mirror and go, wait, I cannot handle both of these responsibilities. Well, the players, I guarantee you from being in a locker room for 10 years, I guarantee you the players are looking, and that is probably their biggest concern on how that will be handled. Sure, because if you apply the dynamic that worked for Sean McVay in Los Angeles defensively, he has Wade Phillips, who I don't know how you feel about him, but I think over the last 25 years, you're hard-pressed to find someone as good as Wade Phillips. Don Capers, sure. 
There may be a couple of other guys that uh, that were up there with him. But that's all McVay had to worry about was the offense. And all he has to worry about now is the offense out in L.A. Here in Cincinnati, you have Lou Anarumo. I don't mean to cap, cap on the guy, but he was, I don't think he was the fourth choice for that position. And offensively, you've got an offensive coordinator and... You're not letting them call the plays. So you're right. I think that dynamic has got to change if this team is going to change. And I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if Mike is going to do that. Mike has put his foot down over the... Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Of course of the history of this team and said, no, we're doing it this way. My, my goodness. I, I, I don't think he's slipped. In the last 25 or 30 years, I think he understands that this is a dynamic that's not working. We'll see if that if that happens going forward. I like Dalton. I said that. I want to ask you about this whole thing about who the Bengals should take if they have the number one overall pick. And right now, I think they're they're two games up on on uh, the Redskins. A game up on the Redskins uh, for that number one overall pick. And even though the Redskins don't need a quarterback. Uh, they still could. Uh, they could still de- de- determine the outcome of the draft. I- I'm, I'm sorry. They're 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 two games up on the Redskins and one game up on the Giants, both of whom don't need quarterbacks but could control that that number one overall pick. I'm just wondering if they have a chance to take Joe Burrow, who I like, but that doesn't mean anything other than I like him. Would they take Joe? Should they take Joe Burrow? In your opinion? Oh, absolutely. They have no choice. But in, for two reasons. Number one, he's the best prospect out there. Number two, he fits a need for them that they can shuffle some things and create an asset with Andy or use Andy as a veteran quarterback that can teach him for a year and then go, and he can part. They can part way. So that works perfectly for them in that aspect. However, this is a ball club that we are concerned because if you look at the David Klinglers and the Achilles Smith, if they don't address the offensive line. I don't care who you put back there. You can put a Patrick Mahomes back there and Aaron Rodgers back there. The only quarterback that will really fit is a Lamar Jackson or a quarterback, a mobile quarterback. Mm -hmm. And Joe Burrow, although he's mobile, he is not a running style quarterback. He is still known as a pocket passer with mobility. So, again, you have to build that offensive line where he will have confidence. I witnessed, Kenny, where David Klingler Hmm. never had a chance simply because he was on his back so much. He never had a chance to develop his confidence. He never had a chance to develop a skill set at the NFL level, and that could very easily happen to a Joe Burrow if that offensive line is not shored up. We're chatting with Tim McGee, my favorite number 85. I'll let you other folks debate whether or not he's the greatest. I think he is, but I just, you know, I like guys that are close to me in age. Um, I, did you watch the 49ers Saints game, Tim? And did you see that fake punt the Saints tried to pull off? And it was clear that the that the punter was uh, it was a pass play with the punter. They threw it to one of the gunners, and he was literally tackled before the ball got there. But yet, no pass interference was called on the gunner. And I'm looking at this thinking, 
when I, I'm sure the NFL doesn't have a rule in place for this. Maybe they do, and maybe it was enforced. I don't know. It looked like they were making it up on the fly when I was watching this game, but I, I've never seen something like that before where the punter throws to the gunner and the gunner is literally tackled before he has a chance to catch the ball and there's no pass interference call. Did you see that play? I, I saw the play, but here's what my thought process was after, immediately after seeing it. I, I was thinking, did the official think it was a punt, number one? Mm. So maybe he didn't see the actual punter throw the ball because obviously it was a long pass and yep. obviously it had a trajectory where it went up. So I was thinking to myself, like, did that official think that was actually a punt? And because if you look at it by definition, by the rule, it is clearly a pass interference. Yeah. But once again, when you have a punt team on, did the whole situation fool the officiating crew to believe that that was a punt? And when when the receiver, which was not a traditional number 81, 85, 87 receiver, was he, when he was tackled, I just think they were food completely. Now, here's the disappointing part. The human element will always happen in the game. They made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you don't review it. Yeah, I know. You don't you don't correct the mistake that was made. And that's the sad yeah. part about the officiating this year. Yeah, and, and not I, I correcting think, when I, mistakes are made. I think Sean Payton still had a challenge in his pocket and he chose not to throw the red flag. Of all people, why wouldn't he do it considering what happened to him in the championship game last year? I it was it was baffling to me, but um, again, there are a lot of things. I just think this has been the worst officiated year in the National Football League by far that I can remember. But you oh, know, and, and go ahead. The Timmy. last piece of that, Kenny, was when you say Sean McVay. I mean Sean. Um, Sean. I, I, what, what's the quarterback from New Orleans name? Oh, uh, and, uh, 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 Drew Brees. No, the, the I'm not quarterback. The uh, the uh, head coach. Oh, Sean Payton. Yeah, yeah. Sean Payton, Sean Payton. I'm getting Sean McVay and Sean Payton mixed up. When he did not use his with his uh, his challenge, you have to go back to think. When they've been using, when coaches have been using the challenge on pass interference, it's such a low probability of it being t- uh, turned over. Maybe that was his thought process. But then I'm going back to the Bengals game when they of uh, what didn't appear to be a pass interference. They, they overchanged it. I so know, I know. You, you just never know what the hell you're going to get from this mixed bag of officials. Oh, yeah, I know. It's just, it's terrible. I, thought, I think it was Carl Cheffers was the referee yesterday, and his crew just, even little things like, is it a motion penalty, is it not? Is it a shift penalty, is it not? It just, it's, it really is just, just they're killing the game right now, and they're going to have to do something about it. But, you know, Tim, maybe down deep this is what the NFL wants, you and me talking about things like that on a Monday because there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Well, this is true, but if officiating, you know, as it costs the Saints an opportunity to play in the Super Bowl, I get it, but, but now that you've incorporated instant replay and you've improved instant replay and you have all this technology and all these cameras, uh, there's just no excuse for it. Just yeah. make the right call. And I understand you don't want to slow the game down, but there are points in, the, in times in the game where it could be decide the outcome of the game, and that's what you're seeing. And when it's having, a, and when human error is having an effect on the outcome of the game, I think uh, you've got to use instant replay because that's what it's there for. Yeah, uh, Timmy, always great catching up with you. Stay healthy, my friend, and uh, I'm sure I'll bump into you in the hallway here before long. Thank you. You got it. Thanks, Kenny. Uh, Tim McGee, one of my all-time favorites. The officiating this year has just been 
it, it goes beyond description. And if you if you're going to do what happened to the Bengals on that pass interference call or challenge or whatever it is, now you got problems. You just do. On the one hand, you have Freddie Kitchens who challenged it and won. On the other hand, you have Sean Payton who didn't challenge it. I think you owe it to your team to challenge it. 954 News Radio 700 WLW. I, I don't know if you actually saw it. Well, you probably did if you watched the highlight show about this whole thing about about uh, the pass interference on a on a gunner. The, the NFL rule is it, and they put this in place. I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. The NFL rule says when when the offense lines up in punt formation. Defensive pass interference cannot be called because if it was, teams would just, they'd do it all the time. They'd try to fake punts, throw it downfield, and try to get a gunner to commit pass interference. So you can't call pass interference on a punt, defensive pass interference on a punt. Um, To me, and again, I just looked at this again, there should have at least been some sort of holding penalty, not some sort, holding should have been called. But you can't review whether or not there was holding. So I understand that. I, I ju- and the Saints, I mean, you should have. Sean Payton was just beside himself. But the rule says you can't call pass interference on a fake punt, defensive pass interference. But again, if you've got to go that deep in explaining the rules, if you've got to get that intricate about what is pass interference and can it be reviewed and is it reviewed, it seems to me you've got, you got a problem because a lot of your fans are wondering what the hell is going on here in real time. The announcers didn't even know what was going on. Uh, coming up on 10.01, are we training illegal aliens to shoot us up on our Army bases and Naval bases? It would seem like that might be the case after what happened in Pensacola the other day. We'll get into that next on 700 WLW. Now, your host, Ken Brew, on News Radio 700 WLW. In for Scott Sloan, one more time, the FBI is now investigating the shooting at the Pensacola Naval Base that occurred on Friday, a Saudi national who was here on training. He was an aviation trainee. And uh, he used a 9-millimeter Glock 45 pistol, purchased legally, by the way, in the United States. He used that to, on Friday, shoot up a classroom where he killed three people and sent several more to the hospital with injuries. And it leads, it leads to the question, should, be, should we, as the United States, be, tra- be, allow- be training foreign nationals on our soil, on... Our naval bases, our army bases, wherever it may be, should we be training foreign nationals in combat, in arms handling, in whatever else it may be, under current law, if at all? Because it seems to me this raises a red flag, and of course the politicians will weigh in on this shortly. We already have heard from the two sitting senators in Florida and the governor of Florida about this, about whether or not we should continue to train, not just from Saudi Arabia, but anywhere that would be a friendly nation or considered a friendly nation. Should we be training their people on our soil? 
Uh, standing by on the AcuteHearingCenters.com hotline is a good guest of this program. He is retired Lieutenant Jason J. Redman. Ten years as a Navy SEAL, ten more as a SEAL officer leading SEAL teams in combat operations. And uh, if his new book isn't out yet, it, sh- it soon will be. Overcome, Crush Adversity with the Leadership Techniques of America's Toughest Warriors. And Lieutenant Redmond, welcome back to 700 WLW. And how are you on this glorious Monday? Ken, I'm awesome, man. Buckeyes won on Saturday yes. after fighting back. Yeah. New book comes out tomorrow. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of patriotic Americans who believe in this country and want to do the right thing, which uh, that's a, definitely what we can talk about today with this guy. Yeah. Uh, for, uh, first of all, uh, we should note uh, Lieutenant Redmond, Pratt, Ohio, and big Ohio State fan. And again, his book, uh, I didn't know it was tomorrow, so timing is everything. Um so, Lieutenant Redmond, this whole concept, before we get into what this guy did and how he did it and how he obtained this weapon legally, should we be, as, as, a, as a country, in the business of training uh, foreign nationals, regardless of the state of relations between the two countries, should we be training them on our bases here in the United States? Okay, and this is something that's been going on for years. I mean, ever since, uh, you know, I was in the military from 1992 to 2013, and over the period of my military career, uh, we worked with ally nation militaries uh, on a regular basis, and they come to the United States and go through U.S.-led military training. Um, when I went through SEAL training, we had Singaporean officers that were in training with us. When I went through uh, U.S. Army Ranger School in 2006, uh, we had host nations. And uh, I know we had the very first Iraqi officer from the new Iraqi military uh, go through that training. So this is something we've done for years. It's to build relationship, relationships, and, and obviously it does have – uh, some positive benefits. I mean, there are a lot of times where, I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at the Iraqi military, if you imagine ten years prior to us going into Iraq, and then suddenly we were to go into Iraq, we now have this relationship with this individual as we're coming in there, and we're preparing, and we're working with the host nation military. Yeah. So there are benefits to it. That uh, being said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that being said, uh, I, I did some research. I have never seen um, – I've never seen an instance, or at least I could not find an instance, where a host nation military member um, uh, did something violent during one of our schools here in the United States. I could not find that. So if it exists, I didn't see it. Uh, this is probably the first case we've seen of this. But I will say there is a very common thread between al-Shamrani Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, who else and where else we've seen this? And that's overseas. Overseas, when we're training these host nation militaries and police forces. So in Iraq, we were training the Iraqi military and the Iraqi police. And in Afghanistan, we were doing the same. And of course, everybody knows we've got a lot of dead Americans from what we call green on blue incidents, where we were training these individuals and uh, 
we had a sleeper, you know, someone that came in there with the full intent of attacking our people, waited for the right moment, and then they conducted that attack. So when you look at those in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you look at happened with al-Shamrani, the one common thread is all of them were radicalized uh, extreme is followers of extreme Islam. Yeah. Well, this so Al- they were radicalized yeah. on the far on that far side. Yeah. Well, the Al Sharami, the guy that uh, was the shooter in Florida on Friday, uh, this guy hosted a dinner party where he and three others watched videos of mass shootings, and then he had a couple of other buddies, at least one outside, videotaping this this shooting in the classroom. Uh, a couple of other students watching from the car. Uh, it would seem Got to be. All- it seemed to me at the very least that uh, we did not do a very good job of vetting uh, this dude, right? And, and his buddies. A- a- absolutely. And, uh, but I think that lends itself to what is that vetting process. And especially, I think we need to acknowledge the fact Saudi Arabia reached out and said, hey, we're really sorry this happened. But, okay, Saudi Arabia, you know, the terrorists who knocked down the Twin Towers on uh, September 11, 2001, crashed four of our planes, one into the Pentagon, one in Pennsylvania. They were all Saudi citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Osama bin Laden was a Saudi citizen. You obviously, the Wahhabi sect of uh, Islam is this very extreme sect, this extreme ideology. Uh, bin Laden and those individuals were all proponents of that ideology. Mm-hmm. So Saudi Arabia, obviously, there is a problem in your country that you have individuals who are buying into this extreme ideology. I think the U.S. needs to take a look, whether it's DOD, whether it's State Department, whether it's uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security, and all of these fall together in this category. Of If we are going to allow individuals that come from predominantly uh, Islamic nations, and they have a propensity, obviously, for some of their citizens to take this radical approach, we need tighter vetting. Basically, they need to agree that we can, uh, we have access to them 24-7, their electronic devices, anything they're doing to make sure um, they're not becoming radicalized and doing what this guy did to our American service members. Well, here's the, you know, you mentioned a great point. This just didn't fester overnight. Uh, You couldn't find Bush 41 or Bush 43 to say a bad thing about the Saudis, particularly in the the wake of of 9/11, Bush 43 would not condemn them at all. Uh, Trump has been very uh, cautious and very gentle with his comments in the wake of this. And it may be this guy was an outlier, and it may be the 13 people that pulled off 9/11 were outliers. But the fact of the matter is, this is our alleged friend over there in that area of the world, and we need that friend because there are a lot of other countries that are just openly hostile to the United States. We can get into the whole oil discussion if you want, but the fact of the matter is when you have a dispute with a friend, you really can't be gentle with them in the way you deal with them. You've got to be frank because if you're not and they don't listen to you, they're not much of a friend to begin with. I I, I need to hear something better than just we've got to have a better vetting process, which is coming from the two senators in Florida. I need to hear something a little stronger than that, and I haven't heard it yet. Have you? No. I mean, we need action, and we need Saudi Arabia to acknowledge that. I mean, I, I mean, it's great to say could these be outliers, but they're outliers that have now cost the lives of, you know, 3,200, 30, yeah. you know, close to 3,300 yes. American yeah. citizens. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not an outlier that we can just say we need stronger vetting. We need actionable steps. Um, and, and then that even steps into the realm of uh, – of, 
uh, gun legislation because, you know, I heard you make the comment when we started that this guy legally bought a gun. Well, he legally bought that weapon. Um, I looked into this, and basically, uh, if foreign nationals can buy a gun if they obtain a hunting permit. Mm -hmm. So basically, they're saying, oh, I'm going to hunt. Well, I got to tell you, <laughs> no one I have ever met carries yes. a Glock no. pistol no. to hunt. No, you're not going uh, you, to kill a deer with a Glock. You're just not going to do it. Absolutely. And, and I will say, I have hunted wild boar, uh, and, and I did have a pistol in the instance if something happened, they got close. But it is not, it's a secondary weapon. And uh, this guy, obviously, this was his primary weapon. They said he went, um, you know, to buy this. So, you know, obviously, that's something else that needs to be uh, addressed and looked at yeah. because, you know, if this guy legally went and purchased this weapon, then. At some point, he decided he was going to commit this act. They went to New York. My question is, did they meet, did they meet with anyone in New York? Yeah. Or was this just a fluke thing? He happened to go to New York before they came back, watched their, you know, got their jihad on watching their videos uh, to get themselves pumped up of mass shootings. And then obviously the next day executed the attack with other members yeah. filming and watching. That's all the hallmarks of a terrorist act. No, it is. Not it, a fluke no, thing. no, no. And the, the FBI is now involved and they're treating it as an act of terrorism. And, and the FBI, normally NCIS would, uh, would handle this investigation. It was handed off to the FBI, I think on Saturday, which would lead you to believe that this, they're investigating this as an act of terrorism. Absolutely, and I mean, if you, I mean, if you look at the definition of terrorism, the un, the unlawful use of violence and intimidation in the pursuit of political aims. I mean, this guy made the statement on Twitter, um, I, "I I hate you as Americans. You know, I don't hate you because of your freedom." Uh, but I hate you because of what you're doing to other nations that are out there, which is a, uh, you know, that is a political aim. Uh, Lieutenant Jason J. Redmond. J. Redmond is with us, and uh, he's retired Navy SEAL for many, many years. Uh, the book is out tomorrow. What is it all about? What is it all about? So, Ken, it's about uh, I survived a pretty devastating enemy ambush. I was shot eight times in a uh, uh, point-blank gunfight. And uh, myself and my team managed to get out of that gunfight and survive. And what I began to realize over the last 12 years of being put back together and working with wounded warriors, working with other individuals that have been through massive trauma, everybody gets ambushed in life. And it may not be actual bullets and bombs like I experienced in that firefight, but they are the bullets and bombs of life. Whether it is a divorce, whether you are caught in a mass shooting, whether it is a life-threatening disease, whether it's a lawsuit, these are the ambushes of life. And this book lays out the step-by-step -step process we have broken down. The same process that enabled me to survive, we put it into relatable civilian terms on how anybody out there, whether it's physically, personally, or professionally, if they're going through an ambush, one, how to get out of that ambush right now, and two, how to be more proactive in your thinking and prepare yourselves for the future ones that are coming. Because I got bad news. <laughs> They're coming for all of us. Yeah. They always do. Yeah, they really are. There's no escaping it. We can find this on Amazon, probably uh, brick-and-mortar places like Barnes & Noble. And uh, it, it'll, I, if it's anything like your first book, Trident, it is going to be a great read. Uh, Lieutenant, it's always great having you on. Thanks for some clarity on this instance. We appreciate it. Ken, absolutely. Thanks for having me on and looking forward. It's going to be a big game. Yeah, it big is. Big game, Ohio State. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It is. Thank you, Lieutenant. All right, guys. That's Lieutenant Jason J. Redmond.
So the FBI is involved. They're treating it as an act of terrorism. But I just think if you're going to bring people in from another country, it doesn't matter whether they're friends or not. There's obviously a vetting process that needs to be in place. And this whole thing about foreign nationals being able to buy weapons legally for hunting purposes, uh, to me, that just, I mean, really? I mean, with the gun issue problems we have in this country, now we're going to have whomever come over here and just say from whatever country, yeah, let me go, uh, yeah, I, you know, no, I'm a hunter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that 9-millimeter Glock, that's going to be perfect for what I hunt. What are you hunting, pigeons? 749-7000-1800, the big one. Pound 700 on AT&T. If you want to weigh in on that, phone lines are open right now. 1022, Scott Sloan is out. Ken Brew is in. News Radio, 700 WLW. 700 WLW, welcome back. Ken Brew for Scott Sloan. You had a chance to see the Who or the Rolling Stones in concert. What decision would you make? That's a tough one. I think I'd see the Stones, yeah. I mean, they're all great-grandfathers, and Mick will be out there in a walker probably in a year or two. So, Rain, gusty winds, high 56 tonight. Rain at times. Mixing mayhaps with some snow, low of 37, which means it's not going to stick. So just, you know, take it easy. Mostly cloudy and temperatures are falling big time tomorrow, all the way down to the low 30s by the afternoon, and sunny and cold on Wednesday. High of 35, we're holding steady at 50. 50 degrees at the Tri-State Severe Weather Station. News Radio 700 WLW. Walt is in Beaver Creek and wants to weigh in on this shooting at uh, the Pensacola Naval Station. Walt, you're on the air, and you go right ahead. Yeah, hi, Ken. It's always good to hear your voice. And I would choose the stones over the two. Uh, as far as going to a concert. I uh, want to let you know, I worked for over 30 years for the Department of Defense and the Air Force, and uh, there were two ways we would give sell weapon systems to foreign countries. One was foreign military sales, in which the country would pay for it, including a line uh, along with the airplane uh, support equipment and so forth. There would be a line for training mm-hmm. in which we or, and or the contractor would provide training to the country. The other way was grant aid, which is basically just a giveaway to these countries. Mm-hmm. Under either condition, the defense contractors made billions of dollars. So, again, we have follow the money type of concept here. The whole thing that Eisenhower warned about with the military-industrial complex, uh, it would seem to me, and one of our great examples of how our being a friend and providing training and equipment to a country who later became not our friend was Iran. We had we sold billions of dollars of equipment, lots of money on training to Iran, and then of course that all went south. Sure, the Shah left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying it's all the devil in the details, and that it's more involved than just training. It's what we do oh, yeah. in terms of commerce with these other countries. Right. I mean, if you, if you sell them an F-15, then you know how to fly it. Yeah, yeah. And so part of the package is training. But there's no reason why the training couldn't be done in-country. That way you'd only risk a few of our DOD training uh, officers, not a whole room of uh, other country yeah. participants and U.S. Air Force or a Marine or Navy yeah. Uh, yeah. persons. And, and chances are, and thank you, Walt, chances are, unless that person is completely radicalized and they're off the, you know, off the charts in that way, the, the chances are of them pulling something like that off on their own turf uh, would be more difficult than trying to pull it off here in the United States. But, I mean, the guy killed himself. Well, he didn't kill himself. I'm sorry. He was, he was killed in, in the, the gunfire afterwards. But 
the fact of the matter is, is if somebody is hell-bent on doing that, turf doesn't matter. It's just that when it's in your country, you should take all precautions necessary. And I think they're going to have to just reevaluate this whole thing about selling guns to foreign nationals because they like to hunt. You're in here. You're on this country in a visa. You like to hunt. Let's sell them a gun. Uh, I think that may need some reevaluation. Coming up on 1030 News Radio 700 WLW. Time to give your wallet a helping hand. This is the Simply Money Advisors with Amy Wagner. One of the nicest people I've ever worked with in my alleged career standing by to visit with me right now. It's Amy Wagner. Amy, how are you on this glorious Monday? I'm so good. You're so kind. Thank uh, you. That should be a song. I'm so good. You're so kind. <laughs> there you go. How did we that's miss your, that one? That's your next career. Hey, happy my... Green Monday. Did you know that's a thing? Uh, no, but <laughs> but green go. I have red hair, so green goes with red. It's Christmas, right? There you go. Yeah. Merry Christmas to you. Why, do, why Green Monday? What is Green Monday? Well, so this was started in 2007 by eBay. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, then, you know, your Walmarts and your Amazons and your other retailers have sort of jumped in on the party as well. This is always the Monday after Cyber Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from the research I've seen, it sort of extends a lot of the deals it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. That you could have gotten maybe on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So hmm. if you missed one, if you missed something and you went back and checked it maybe over the weekend or last late last week and you're like oh i missed that deal check it again today uh the deal may actually be back out there so okay, good. something That's... to consider what yeah. a tip what a tip there you go now i'm, I'm saving sa- you money you are so you saved me money already or you made me spend it already i don't know i haven't <laughs> figured that out yet but it was so friday i'm sitting i'm sitting at my uh, my desk on friday i, I have this desk and Friday was a good day for, for all of us financially. I mean, you could get the jobs report, right? Yep. Uh, new jobs. I think they're almost a quarter million, more than a quarter million new jobs compared with, uh, I think they wanted, they, they were expecting like 150,000 new jobs in the month of November. Now, that that's good news on a lot of fronts, but it's it's also good news if you got a 401k, isn't it? I, mean, I think. It, it absolutely is, without a doubt, because there is kind of a cycle here which says, Okay, if the jobs report is good, it means that more Americans are working. And the more Americans that are working, it means the more confident we are. And then we're going to go out and spend. Whether it's this holiday season, whether it's gas, whether it's, you know, weekend restaurants, whatever it is, we're spending more. And then, of course, all of those businesses, right, which we've invested in in the stock market in our 401k, Mm -hmm. are making more money. So, So the cycle is good whenever we're feeling kind of positive. And I think the reason why it's so important to point this out today, Ken, is because Over the summer, there were a lot of several times when you could jump online and you were hard-pressed to find a headline that didn't say the sky is falling, the stock market is going to crash, a a recession is coming, that kind of thing. And I'll tell you, like here at Allworth, we said, hold on, slow down. You know, we don't see this. And, And we look at a number of, we call them leading economic indicators, but it's just a number of signals that the economy might be going south. And all we can do when we sit back and look at it is say, okay, things were great, Mm -hmm. and now maybe they're going to good. 
but good is, of course, still not bad. And then you look at this jobs report, which was better than economists even anticipated, uh, and, and wages are up more than expected year over year. So a number of things pointing in the right direction of, listen, for those of you who panicked when you read those uh, when you read those headlines and maybe got out of the stock market or maybe changed some things with your investments or your 401ks, this is why we say if you're a smart long-term investor, you will tune out that noise mm-hmm. and put your, like, you know, just face forward and keep moving that way. Right. You have to understand that the market is going to fluctuate. It's up and down. You're in it for the long haul. Now, I know a lot of friends that, you know, they took a lot of money out of the market, put it in bonds. And you know, bonds are okay, but they're... They're long-term, maybe they're safer, but they're not going to get you the return that a stock will get you. Am I right on that? You're absolutely right, especially in the low interest rate environment that we're in right now. I mean, I think there was a time when you could have looked at a a treasury or something like that, a 10-year treasury, and gotten a decent yield from it. You know, you could have expected 4, 5, 6%, but with low interest rates right now, you're going to get nothing close to that with a bond. And, you know, I, I talk to people all the time who are maybe in retirement, and that's kind of a scary transition for a lot of people because that paycheck isn't coming in. So the amount of money you have, right, is the amount of money you have, and you want to protect it. At the same time, people are living longer and longer and longer, so you sort of need need that growth component in it. So getting scared, I mean, certainly you want to find the exact right mix of stocks and bonds for yourself, and that's going to be different for everyone at the same time. I think if you're letting headlines scare you into making different decisions uh, than you made maybe when you sat down with someone you trusted, a financial advisor, that's the problem. And without a doubt, if you want to step back, we had the Brexit going on. Mm-hmm. So the possibility of the entire European Union, you know, who, who knew it was going to happen after London left the European Union? And then, of course, the trade deal. And that kept getting worse and worse and worse with us, you know, volleying back and forth between China with more and more tariffs. And so businesses started to get scared. And I think there's a lot of consumers out there, a lot of us who are like, oh, I don't know how this is going. Right. And, and I think the reason why it's worth noting, you know, I mean, people can be like, you know, jobs report, whatever, it comes out once a month. Nothing too exciting. This one was pretty exciting, and I think that's worth noting uh, that this time of the year, um, some pretty good news going into the holidays. And, and last year, Ken, I don't know if you remember, but the stock market was not where we are right now. No, that's the Fed's problem. I, they, they messed <laughs> The Fed messed everything up last year. I wanted to. I wanted to go to Washington and testify. I was upset. There you go. There you go. And that was certainly after the the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, made some comments that kind of spooked uh, investors, spooked Wall Street. And the stock market, you know, took a pretty big nosedive. But but 2019, market-wise, has been a a pretty good year for the S&P 500. And so I think that for those who can kind of ride out the waves in the, the headlines and you know, some of the global things that are going on, it's, it's bear, you're bearing the fruit right now. So what's your point, Amy? I mean, come on, what's your point? <laughs> point is, don't panic when you read those headlines, right? Yeah. Understand there's going to be risk in the stock market. That's just part of it. And then know what you own. You mentioned the bonds versus the stocks. Know what you're invested in. Yeah. Make sure, especially that 401k, is the right mix for you for people who've got target date funds? Uh, maybe now's the time to look and say, okay, maybe I'm going to do something a little more specialized for me. Um, those target date funds are for someone who's getting close to retiring in a certain year. So 2036 is your target date fund, but they're very one size fits all. So yeah. it's a good time to look at that 401k uh, and celebrate, hopefully, what's been a pretty good year for you and to remind yourself. This is why you don't panic. No, exactly. And I think if we look ahead financially to 2020, I, I, I think this is going to be 
they said last year, as you as you well know, you probably told your clients too. Look, just buckle up. It's going to be a roller coaster. You're in this thing for the long haul. Mm-hmm. I kind of think 2020 is going to be a very good year for a number of reasons. One, it's a presidential election, uh, and and usually, not always, but usually, that leads to kind of a stable economy. And I think Trump's sitting on this China deal. I think he's going to announce it sometime in 2020, and I think the stocks are just going to go up then too. It would be foolish for him to announce it now. Announce it when you're in, a, in an election year, and that's going to carry the market for a while. No, I think that's a good point when you look back at history, that certainly presidential years can be that way. Also, those economic indicators that we can look at as far as, you know, what is consumer confidence looking right, like right now? What is the jobs report telling us? How many people are buying new houses and building new houses? All of those things are in the green. We look at that on a weekly basis. We've got brilliant economists who work here. And we can only look out about six to nine months, mm-hmm. you know, with, with reasonable certainty and say, we don't see the risk of a recession looming. Uh, certainly, if you'd read a lot of headlines over the past year, there were people prognosticating that. But no. I'm telling you, you see that every year. Smart, smart people, you know, grabbing headlines, saying things like that. And then six months later, if you read that same person, they're backtracking. Yeah, it's a guy, <laughs> the, the one guy on TV, I don't I think it's CNBC where you can see the vein coming out of his yes. neck every morning. That guy. I don't know yes. who that guy is. but I'm That's afraid enough he, to freak you out, right, Jim Cramer? Oh, yeah, that's the guy. Yep. I, I'm a, first of all, I'm afraid from, from a health standpoint. <laughs> Second of all, he's yelling and screaming. He knows all these CEOs and the sky's falling. And I'm on a treadmill and at Jim saying, what are you looking at? Because I'm looking down here at what I've done the last year in my 401k. Yep. And I'm thinking, well, okay, if you scream loud and long enough about anything, chances are you'll be right at some point. Yes. Uh, I want to get into practical things here now, Amy, because a lot of people are out shopping. I'm looking right across the street here at the Kenwood Town Center, and it's mm-hmm. jammed again today. Uh, you have to know your limitations. And don't think because it's a gift that's 150 bucks that it's going to be a great gift because it's 150 bucks. There might be a nice gift out there for 30 bucks, and everybody in your life doesn't need a gift. Know your limitations financially. I know it's easy to say, but a lot of us forget that this time of the year. Without a doubt. That's why there are 80 million people still paying off last year's holiday gifts right now. Wow. Truly. Uh, and, and nobody wants to fall into that place. And unfortunately, this time of the year, while it is such a great time of the year with family and friends, there's also a lot of pressure that many people feel to spend more. And I have seen some recent studies that show most Americans at some point have felt pressure to spend more than you're comfortable with this time of the year, whether it's hosting something, whether it's holiday travel, or of course you mentioned those gifts. I think that's a huge one for a lot of people. It doesn't have to be a $150 gift. And especially for parents, you know, you've got two kids. It's really easy, especially when they were younger, to think in your mind, well, this one has five gifts, so this one needs five gifts. Right. Or I spend X amount on this one, so no, no, no. They're right. really not paying that close of attention. They, they right. wanted the couple things. They wanted the few things that they wanted. But, you know, hopefully your kids are not the kind who are paying attention to that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and I think if, if many of us would have conversations with others, whether it's a gift exchange with coworkers or family members, I think a lot of people would step up and say, yeah, let's just draw names or let's keep it to a $20 limit or whatever. It's really easy for these things to get out of hand. And I think if you could just communicate a little more, you probably wouldn't get into that place. But you've got to set a budget and and try to stick with it. And for anyone who has an issue with that, there's a great app. It's called Santa's Bag. It's free. uh, And you put in your budget. When you get started for the entire shopping season, you put in who you're going to buy what for, you know, how much you're expecting to spend, and it tracks it for you. So it'll tell you, you know, Ken, you've got five gifts left to buy, and you've got right. 250 bucks left right. in your budget. Or, hey, Ken, you're 120 bucks over, 
And then maybe you make some decisions about what am I going to do with those remaining gifts? How can right. I kind of curb this so well, I'm not out of control? You just ask the people you gave gifts to to give them back because you can't afford them. Yeah. Santa's got a brand new bag. Well, you know, you're right. You look at who you gave gifts to last year. You may not even like those people anymore. So Things you might change, not have to worry about right? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Amy, you're the best. You make great. You make great sense. I, you know, I know why Sloan has you on every Monday because you just make a lot of sense. But I knew that from working with you all you those years we go ago. Back years. Oh, we got a history. We do. <laughs> you have a great week. Thank you. you. Too. Amy Wagner. Yes, yes, yes. And remember, on uh, on fifty five KRC, right? I mean, fifty five KRC. It's a you know, right down the hallway, right next to us. Uh, she and Nathan Backrack are on every weeknight at 6.06. She carries Nathan. Amy makes a point, drag Nathan. Amy makes a better point, drag Nathan. Weeknight 6.06 on 55KRC. Ken Brew for Scott Sloan on this Monday. Hope you're doing well. 1048 News Radio, 700 WLW. 10.53. Ken Brew for Scott Sloan. How are you? On this rainy Monday. Glad you're with us. Glad you're with me. Because without you, I'd just be some guy sitting in a room by himself babbling into a microphone with no one listening. And I can get that at home. Seven four nine seven thousand one eight hundred. the big one. Uh, our topic about the Pensacola shooting has uh, has really struck a nerve, garnered some phone calls, Twitter uh, tweets, all that. So uh, without further ado, let's flog the phones. Let's start in Dallas. Tom is in Dallas, by God, Texas. And you were a student at Pensacola. Is that right, Tom? All those yeah, years ago? I, I'm actually, I'm, yeah, I'm actually retired Navy. Retired as a captain, and so I got a little bit experience in the Navy. Well, uh, but I was a student way back when. And in those days, uh, I actually had a roommate who was from Iran. And one of the things that was explained to us, it's not as simple as saying that, well, we're going to train them to help them or whatever. There's a whole, and again, I wasn't in logistics, but what I was told is part of it is, is you know, the, the Iranians helped pay for my training because they paid for their students actually more than we, they were costing us to, to train. And I would, I don't know that for sure, but I would guess that might be one of the relationships we have with the Saudis. Plus, in the pre-Ayatollah days, Iran was one of our linchpins uh, as far as our our allies in yep. the Middle East. Which is what and Saudi, which, lot, yeah, which is what Saudi Arabia is right now. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, but, but I think that what might be missing in the conversation, and this is just my opinion, is that our even though as long as I've been living, the Middle East, we always talk about that instability. And uh, when I was at the War College, we talked about the haves and the have-nots in the East versus the West, et cetera, et cetera. Those types of conflicts or challenges were always there. But it just seemed to me, when I, maybe it was the, my naivete being a young ensign, was that we had a stronger position in the world. People respected us more. And, of course, it's post-9-11, and we see more of this that has expanded, you know, outside of, you know, Israel was on the vanguard of all yeah. this, and now yeah. all of a sudden the rest of the world is facing it. Well, this so, was this was when? When was this, Tom? Give, us, uh, give me the date this was. Was this recently that you were in Pensacola? I mean, when was this? Long, many, long, long time ago, well, 1975. Well, in 75, uh, we really didn't have. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have to the extent <laughs> we have now, um, uh, terrorism. Uh, we didn't have exactly. we didn't have the we didn't have the total indoctrination of people into uh, radical terrorism like we have exactly. now, and we didn't have social media. It's always a different time, really, when you think about exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that is the big part of it. Now, I don't have the answers. You know, uh, you know, it would take maybe the, a, a Kissinger type of mind to be able to kind of figure some uh-huh. of this stuff out. But I think a big part of it is I heard somebody comment on your radio show about giving guns or giving training. To me, that's not the issue. The issue is how do we deal with these people, admittedly, that need to be our allies, Mm -hmm. and how do we deal with this post-9-11, you know, position in the world, not just at Pensacola or in the services, but how do we stand in the world as far as standing up to this? And, of course, our allies, Germany and France. I I agree with you. Um, I I think it's very intricate. Tom, thank you for the phone call. I think it's also, it also shows that when you talk about vetting, it's more than just vetting people that come here and what they do. It's it's a deep dive into how we approach what we do against what the rest of the world does. And let's face it, we don't have a lot of support with uh, the EU right now. In fact, uh, we, we are pretty weak when it comes to support financially and otherwise with the EU. So uh, I think I think it, you're right. It's a very difficult thing to explain to the families of those three soldiers, those three students uh, down in Pensacola, Florida, that this is the reason why their loved ones were killed. But I think like anything else, when you hit a time of trauma, you have a great chance, a great opportunity to, to just figure out how are we conducting business both here and across the sea. This is uh, crew chief, crew chief, crew chief. You're on the air. You go right ahead. <laughs> Hi, uh, um, Ken. I am uh, retired from the Air Force uh, NCO with a maintenance background. My the previous military callers and your civilian from Beaver Creek pretty well fill in all the blanks. So there's not a whole lot I can add. Uh, all I want to say is it's kind of sad that this incident kind of overshadows what really is is a really good thing. I mean, to train alongside our allies and to work with them. I've worked with uh, nations around the world. Uh, and uh, as far as uh, we need to continue that, but you touched on the, the firearms thing, and, and absolutely. Now, I don't know how it works for other nations training with us in this country, but I know anywhere we're stationed overseas, we have what's called a status of forces mm-hmm. agreement, and that details everything, whether I can drive in their country, whether I can buy firearms, yeah. what I can do off-base, and so on. Yeah. And, I, and like I said, that might be worth looking to see. Oh, what I, we... I, I think very much, Crew Chief, thank you for the phone call. I think, yeah, it, it, it's, it's like anything else. It takes a time of trauma. It takes some sort of cataclysmic event, whether it's in your personal life or in the in the government or wherever it may be, that you need to do just a deep-dive look at exactly how you're conducting business. But it just seems odd uh, to me that um, that when you have people from a foreign nation 
here on American soil for whatever purpose, but let's just say in this purpose of training for or to be a soldier in their country back home, why you wouldn't have more of a keener eye towards things like social media, their movement inside the country, and also uh, why someone would be allowed to buy a firearm, uh, a 9 millimeter gun for a hunting, as was explained to, uh, to us by Lieutenant Redmond a couple of minutes ago. That's used as, uh, as an auxiliary weapon. It's not used as a primary weapon when you go out and you hunt. So I just, there were so many red flags here that I think were either overlooked or because of policy were ignored. And I just think right now it's time uh, maybe to just view exactly what we're doing. Because in reality, you can have the greatest friend in the world. You don't know when that friend will turn on you. And someone who was from a country that is a friend turned on us. Well, okay, if you're a friend... Uh, then you've got to confront that friend. I haven't heard that yet from certainly the people in the State Department and from the President of the United States. I need stronger language, and I need a sterner look. Because, again, Saudi Arabia has a history with this, don't they, in our country? Straight ahead, he's one of the greatest stars of 60s music, and he's coming to Cincinnati. He's going to stop by and talk to us next. We'll tell you who that is next on 700 WLW. Now, your host, Ken Brew, on News Radio 700 WLW. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us on this Monday. As we uh, battle through the rain, temperatures are going to drop. Looks like uh, snow will not be a factor, at least at this point. Maybe a little uh, mixing in with uh, rain overnight, but uh, not going to stick because, one, the temperature is only going to be 37, and two... Streets are still fairly warm. In fact, we're we're shooting for a high of 56 today. We're at 51 right now, but soon it will be Christmas, and soon we may want to see some snow, maybe. You know, we get into the Christmas spirit a number of different ways, but one of those ways is music, right? We listen to Christmas standards, and we listen to some of the new stuff and maybe some of the holiday songs, the uh, the traditional holiday songs that are out there. Coming to the Ludlow Garage one week from this Saturday night is a guy who has to be considered an icon of the 60s and the 70s when it comes to music. He is Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits. He's got a Christmas show that he's bringing to the Ludlow Garage, and uh, maybe he'll sing a hit or two from uh, all those years gone by. But he's standing by right now on the AcuteHearingCenters.com hotline. And, uh, Peter, just a while, I'm guessing, uh, first of all, welcome to Cincinnati by phone. I'm guessing this is a pretty darn good day for you. Well, you know, we did woke up this morning feeling fine. <laughs> and, and, the, a... and the Stones did woke up this morning. <laughs> That's right. And I'm looking forward to doing my old English Christmas show. But, but the old part is just me and the group. <laughs> well, what, what, is, what is an old English Christmas? Because in Cincinnati, we're not quite that old. What is an old English Christmas? Well, an old English Christmas has the traditional songs in it, like Oh Holy Night and includes Santa Claus. We have a Santa Claus on stage the whole time. We have a couple of elves. Our drummer wears like a little Christmas hat, because, and I wear um, my top hat and carol singing leader oh. outfit. Do you see what I see? Do you see 
So you're totally into it. I mean, this is Christmas top to bottom. Yeah, you know, but we do all our hit songs as well. You do I'm Into Something Good and Wonderful World and Henry VIII. And listen, people's got some of the same chords as Do you hear what I hear? Listen, people. Yeah. Winging through the sky, shepherd boy. Do you hear what I Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I was I was reading the other day, and I, I don't know if this is true or not. Please let me know if it isn't. But the roots of Herman's Hermits are in are in Manchester, England. Is Man- was Manchester the where it all began? For Herman's Hermits, yeah. You know, w- w- there were two cities in England where rock and roll was beginning. Like the Beatles had Liverpool, mm-hmm. and the Hollies and Herman Sermits and Wayne Fontana and Freddie and the Dreamers had Manchester. Mm-hmm. And we used to go and play in each other's territories. And we were all friends because we were like each other. Yeah. You know, you know, Herman Sermits weren't like the Beatles and the Beatles weren't like the Stones and the Stones weren't like the Kings. Right. And we were all unique and we all had our own little story to tell. And uh, we all knew each other and got on quite well. Well, you played the Cavern, right? You played the Cavern in Liverpool, didn't you? Yeah, it was our home room for a long time. You know, what what happened was we were very young, and we got in a place called the Junior Cavern, Mm -hmm. which was, uh, you know, you play lunchtime and uh, school time, school out time, four till six. Mm -hmm. And then as we we got better and better as a group, we got to play in, we'd play the lunchtime, the junior time, and then we got to play in the evening as well. You know, in the same spot as the Beatles had played yes. in. Yes, and like and we started to get the we started to get the same money as the Beatles, which was thirty pounds. <laughs> that was a lot of money back then, though, was it not? It was for us, you know, because the first concert we played, we got four pounds, oh. and it, we almost had enough money to put petrol in the van. Yes. And get to the concert. Hermits, hermits were were two local bands. So you were co- you were you were you're like joining forces to become, in essence, a, a super group over there. Am I right? It was it were two local bands. <laughs> super group is nice. That's great. Uh, I was already an old man. I was fourteen. Mm. I decided that we needed to have people in the group who didn't have a day job as well. That they would make the commitment to go a hundred percent all in. We'd seen the Beatles yeah. at Ermston Show, which was in a field near my grandmother's. And we'd seen the Beatles, and we realized that they loved each other greatly, and they loved playing music, and they had this massive amount of camaraderie. So I decided that we needed to get that together. And we got a band, and there were two guys in another band who fit the bill. One was in his senior year at university, and he quit. And we got a telephone engineer who quit. <laughs> And we were a full-time rock and roll band. We did nothing but that. We all had part-time jobs in the daytime. All of you guys were accomplished musicians, either with instrument or the voice instrument. For example, Carl Green, I thought, was a wonderful guitarist. Yeah, he's a great bass player. And Derek Leckenby was a great guitar player. You know, and, and originally Carl Green wasn't the bass player. He was the guitar player. Yeah. But when Leck showed up, 
Lick was so much better on the guitar that we put Bit Carl on the bass. Wow. And Keith Hopwood went on to the rhythm guitar. And Keith Hopwood was a fantastic guitar player. Mm -hmm. If you listen to Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, hardly anybody can play that still. I no. can't find anybody who can play it as good as him. No, no, no. And I... he was 15. He was 15 he was years 15. old. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Girls as sharp as her are something red. But it's sad. She doesn't love me now. She's made it clear enough. It ain't no good to buy. Speak, yeah. Speaking of that song, you got that. You went in the studio, and that was kind of like, well, we got to finish this album. Let's just do this song. I think it took two or three takes, and you had the song down, right? Oh, it's one take. And the, and the hermits walked up to my microphone to go, ooh, ooh <laughs> lovely daughter. We, we'd run out of songs that other people hadn't recorded. You know, yeah. you couldn't do any Chuck Berry songs because the Stones had done it and the Beatles had done it. So we were looking for a song yeah. that no one else. And we went through our whole set list. We did Sea Cruise and I'll Never Dance Again. And, and, and he goes, what else you got? I said, well, we got this one. And he goes, oh, okay, we'll hide it. We'll put it track three, side two. No one will ever listen to that side. <laughs> Makes a globe feel so brown If she finds that I've been round to see you To see you Tell her that I'm well and feeling fine Feeling fine Don't let on Don't say she's broke my heart I'd go down on my knees But it's no good to find that we met and we built the song around that guitar because it had a damper that made that banjo ukulele sound yeah yeah Atkins invented this guitar and it was called the country gentleman's chet Atkins model and you had a little damper button on it and you wound it up and you could Make that sound. So that's how it, that's Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That's how it all came about. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let on. Don't say she broke my heart. I go down on my knees. But it's no good to find. Hermits Hermits had an uncanny ability to take... Uh, records that had been made previously by people that were long forgotten and spin them into their own hits. I'm into something good. That was a that was a great find, right? The Carol King, Jerry Goffin song. You guys had a really wonderful take on that. We had we had a we were kind of fans of of Carol King and Jerry Goffin. We'd had all their demos. We'd got like a collection of acetates, they were called, mm -hmm. from an American friend who'd got them and worked at a music publisher, probably Screen Gems, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And we got all these acetates, so we knew all these great songs. Woke up this morning feeling fine There's something special on my mind Last night I met a new girl in the neighborhood Whoa, yeah Something tells me I'm into something 
She's the kind of girl who's not too shy. And I can tell I'm her kind of guy. She dances close to me like I hope she would. She dances for me like I hope she would. So little tells me I'm into something good. Chatting with Peter Noon at the Ludlow Garage Saturday, December the 21st for his Old English Christmas. Uh, well, it's like Dandy, right? I mean, Ray Davies wrote that song, and that very easily could have been a kink song. I don't know if he passed on it or not, but but that you took it, you ran with it, and it was a hit. Well, that was Alan Klein's suggestion. You know, Ray was Ray Davies was trying to get a deal with Alan Klein, yeah. who had the Beatles and the Stones and Herman Summits and Donovan, and he wanted the kinks. And he said, part of the deal is, is I can get Herman Summits to record that. And he goes, uh, well, I want to record it. And he said, well, you've got another song that's exactly the same, Well-Respected Man. You put out Well-Respected Man, and Herman can have number one with Dandy. Yeah. And that's yeah. what happened. Dandy, Dandy, where you going to go now? Who you going to run to? All your little life, you're chasing all the girls. They can't resist your smile. Uh-huh. They long for Dandy, Dandy, chatting up the ladies, tickling the fancy, pouring out your charms to meet your own demands, and you turn it off at will. Uh-huh. They long for Dandy, Dandy, knocking on the back door. Through the it's amazing. It's an amazing time. I can't wait to see. I think this is going to be fun. I'm going to be there. I, I, I kind of think a lot of people will be there. And you'll love the facility. The Ludlow Garage is wonderful. It's steeped in tradition. And you've been to Cincinnati before, though, right? I've been to Cincinnati, but I looked at the pictures of the room and I go, that's great. That's like the cavern. It's like a big cavern. I can see the audience. I can interact with the audience. Yes. I can maybe go in the audience and talk to people. I think it's going to be good fun for yeah. me. Yeah, and better food than the cavern. I can tell you that, too. Oh, they only had soup and bovril and <laughs> I coffee. Know, I coffee. know, I know. They had Silla Black working there, and she used to put a spoonful of camp coffee in some sort of hardly warm water and call it coffee. Well, no, yeah. I guarantee you the coffee will be really good. You'll need it because it's December 21st in Cincinnati, but uh, I think you're just going to love the room. Yes, and just redone and, as I said, very steeped in tradition. And thank you so much for doing this. I look forward to seeing you in Cincinnati. It'll be great. Thank you, Peter. Come and say hello. I will, definitely. Thank you. I'm Henry the Eighth, I am. Henry the Eighth, I am, I am. I got married to the widow next door. song has one verse in it. One verse. Henry! No Sam. I'm a great old man, I'm Henry. Henry the Eighth, I am. One verse. Second verse, same as the first. What'd I tell you? Peter Noon is Old English Christmas, heading to the Ludlow Garage on Saturday, December 21st. How about that? How about that? Music icon. Coming up on 1121 News Radio 700 WLW. JeffWellerNissan.com. 700 WLW. Here's a little more Ummits Ummits. Louis Armstrong had a nice version of this, too. You know, the, the thinking about Hermit's Hermits, and, it, you know, you've got to understand, 
that we as people look for things that make us more comfortable. And when things aren't going well, we look for things that are comfort, whether it's food or people or whatever it may be, maybe a pet. But Hermit's Hermits, I think we're popular for a number of reasons. Number one, Peter Noon, who we just had on, had an uncanny resemblance to John Kennedy. He was a much younger-looking version of John Kennedy. And, of course, when the British invasion took place back in the mid-'60s, it was on the heels of John Kennedy's assassination. One of the reasons why I think the Beatles were as successful as they were is because there was a comfort in looking to what, for a lot of Americans at that time, was the homeland. Most Americans had families that were in England or Ireland or someplace in that area of Europe, and here we were, the the president of the United States blown away, and all of a sudden, here comes this, this, this group from another land where a lot of people had emigrated from to our country, and... I think that was part of it. I think part of Herman Hermits, I, I think part of their popularity was Peter Noon had an uncanny resemblance to John Kennedy. And they, I mean, they, and they sounded good, too. As we mentioned in the interview, they are very, very good musicians. All of them in their own right. Very good musicians. There you go. I took that right through the length of the song. Rain and gusty winds today. High of 56 is what they're telling us from the nine on your side. First warning weather center. Rain today mixing with snow later on tonight, low of 37, so that ought to tell you exactly what tomorrow will bring. Mostly cloudy temperatures falling as as Tuesday progresses into the lower 30s by the afternoon, and then sunny and cold on Wednesday, 35 for the high, and we are at 51 degrees right now at the Tri-State Severe Weather Station. News Radio 700 WLW. Ken Brew for Scott Sloan. Now, another great mystery that's out there is who exactly is buried in John Dillinger's grave? We might not have thought of that. But his family was wondering whether or not their loved one is actually in John Dillinger's grave, or was it someone else? John Dillinger, of course, a bank bank robber of great note, he knocked off a bank in, I want to say, Bluffton, and then hit out in Dayton for a while. He's from Indianapolis. Anyway, are they really going to exhume John Dillinger's body to see if it's really him, or will they let it lie in peace in Indianapolis? And if it's not John Dillinger in that grave, then whom might it be? Inquiring minds want to know. 1130, if you're inquiring about the news, there's no better place to bring your inquisition. (laughs) To 700 WLW. Fine time. 700 WLW. How about a little Waylon Jennings on this Monday? Bessie was a lovely child from West Tennessee. Ladies and outlaws. Even though it was an outlaw, part I had me. One day she saw him staring and it chilled her to the bone. And she knew she had to see that look on a child of her own. By the way, you know who's playing drums on this song? Cause ladies guy by the name of Larry London. Larry London. Elvis Presley's final drummer. Presley on tour. He played Cincinnati. Next night he's up in Indianapolis, and that's it. All the way back in 1977. But you can't be Waylon Jennings when it comes to anything. 
Welcome back. We talk about outlaws because stand by. There could be news about a guy that's been dead for 85 years. Now, let me just let me just tee you up if you don't know exactly what a mobster is. A mobster is a guy intent on crime, stealing from others, doing harm to others for his benefit or the benefit of those around him, usually both. And way back in, let's just say, 1931, 32, 33, there was no bigger outlaw than John Dillinger, born in Indianapolis, Indiana, wound up uh, getting arrested for assault and battery with the intent to rob, wound up in the Indiana Reformatory and State Prison. He was there from 1924 to 1933. And there was a, a petition that his father was was passing around to get him out of jail and parole. This would have been in in May of 1933. He was in jail for about a year and a half. Well, they finally uh, released him. It was the the height of the Great Depression. This is back in 1933, as I said. And he he was released, and they said, John, you finally got to get a job. Well, his job was to return to crime, and he started knocking off banks. Knocked off a lot of banks. Had a a posse around him. And uh, he went to school on exactly how to rob banks, and he went about it very, very well. So anyway, along about 1934, the FBI, at the time run by J. Edgar Hoover, and um, J. Edgar Hoover was intent on cracking down on notorious criminals, and so he set out looking for John Dillinger. Now, Dillinger had knocked off banks all over Ohio. He was hiding out in Dayton for a while. But he wound up, Dillinger did, after, I don't, I don't know how many Banks, he, he, he wound up knocking up. He wound up in Chicago. And in Chicago, in 1934, he was cornered in a movie theater, about 10 o'clock at night. He was in this movie theater, and uh, the feds had him cornered, and he whipped out his weapon of choice, which I think was a Colt 45 at the time. And the minute he did that, uh, he just got pummeled with bullets, and he, he died. And there was a funeral for him. And a lot of people, a lot of people showed up to view his body because he was this notorious criminal. There might have been like 10, 15,000 people show up to see what John Dillinger looked like. What he looked like was he's laying in this casket and he's got a bullet wound underneath his right eye. I mean, it was, it was pretty gruesome. So anyway, he was, he was buried after that. And now some 85 years later, his family, in particular his nephew, wants his body exhumed because the nephew and some other people in the family believe that it's not really Dillinger that was killed in that movie theater in 1934. And it's not really Dillinger's body who's in a cemetery in Indianapolis. So they've gone to court. And the court ruled, an Indiana judge ruled about a week ago that said, you're not going to do this. You're not, it's not going to happen, largely because the cemetery doesn't want the remains of John Dillinger or whomever it may be in that grave d- disturbed at all. They, don't want, it just, they want it left that way. And the judge, at least a judge in Indiana, sided with them. Who knows if it goes on past that. The ex- exhumation was, was set for the end of December. 
So there may be there may be some sort of, of court ruling that follows this or some sort of appeal. But right now it's on hold. But it led me to wonder, you know, after 85 years, even if it's not your your uncle, who really cares? How are you going to make money? Half, I had to set John Dillinger up because the majority of people in this country, unless they follow mobs and unless they follow crime in America, which I don't know, I've got, I've, I've got a real interest in. I don't know why. But if, unless, unless, you, unless you set it up and tee up who D- John Dillinger was, most people don't know. Most people don't care. And I can't believe a nephew really cares whether or not that's his uncle in the grave or if it isn't, what does it matter? Because your uncle's probably dead anyway. I mean, this, is, this is 85 years ago, and Dillinger was 31 when he died. Anyway, it's a big deal in Indianapolis, which is where we find Ryan Burrow, ABC News correspondent, who's been covering this story, and whether or not in that box, in that grave, it's really John Dillinger. And we bring him in now on the AcuteHearingCenters.com hotline. And uh, Ryan Burrow, welcome to 700 WLW, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This uh, bizarre case of John Dillinger just continues to yeah. get more and more bizarre, doesn't it? It does. It's it's amazing. Now, for the for the under ninety crowd, who was John Dillinger? John Dillinger uh, really came onto the scene as a bank robber in the 1930s. And uh, his bank robbing career uh, really only lasted a span of about three or four years. But uh, he uh, was known to uh, rob banks uh, in the middle of the day. Uh, He was known to uh, break out of prison. Uh, He had a bunch of henchmen. I mean, it's your typical mobster story from uh, the roaring 20s into the 1930s. And he kind of... Uh, you know, lived that lifestyle in Chicago and really across the Midwest. Uh, In 1934, uh, the feds caught up to him. He was leaving a movie theater and uh, apparently tried to pull out a weapon when he was cornered by the FBI, and uh, he was shot by two agents. Uh, They say at the moment they identified him. They knew exactly who this guy was. Uh, He was buried at a cemetery in Indianapolis. That was his hometown. And now here we are more than 80 years later, and there are questions as to who's actually buried six feet underground. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and from what I understand, there are family members that, be- that believe, they, they fervently believe that the body in that casket in the ground at that cemetery is not John Dillinger. I think it's, it's great-nephews or great-nieces or whatever, and they want the thing dug up. Yeah, uh, and this all kind of started with a deal with the History Channel. There had always been rumors that just before his death, John Dillinger had changed his look, had gone through some plastic surgery, had even gone through the process of burning off his fingertips so that he couldn't be identified uh, through fingerprint identification. Uh, that being said, uh, the FBI, as late as this year, uh, released images of him when he died. Uh, they used to make something called a death mask. It was actually like a waxy mask that people that uh, they would create um, just in case there were any questions about who was buried. Uh, they say they know that they got their guy. There had always been these lingering issues, and now uh, the nephew of John Dillinger uh, says he does not believe that's John Dillinger that's buried, but rather a stand-in. He wants to get a DNA test. Now, to do that, uh, you have to get permission from a couple people. First, the state of Indiana, which gave him the thumbs up to do this back over the summer. And then you 
you have to get permission from the cemetery, which gave him the thumbs down. And that's why uh, we saw a hearing yesterday, uh, the nephew trying to force the cemetery to allow him to exhume this body, and the judge ruling, no, uh, Indiana statute says that uh, it's ultimately the cemetery's decision. So in other words, if I get, let's just say I move to Indiana, which is not that far away, uh, it's right, you know, a couple of miles here from Cincinnati, and I die in Indiana, and my family drops me in the ground in Indiana, the cemetery then controls me. My family has no right to, to my remains, even though I am their blood relatives. I, is this what this judge is saying? That is what the judge is saying, based on an Indiana law. Uh, now, uh, this will probably continually be challenged, especially if there's more TV money being thrown at this Dillinger family. Yeah. Um, but we'll see how high up this goes. Uh, basically, if you are buried in a cemetery and the cemetery says, we don't care, go ahead, you can bury him, then you're fine. Yeah. Um, but this cemetery says they don't want it to, they don't want it to be disturbed. Uh, they're concerned about the families who have other relatives. They don't want this to be turned into some big TV spectacle. Yeah, so there, there is TV money. Here, right? I mean, this the, the the root of all of this is somebody. It's kind of like what um, I guess what Geraldo Rivera did all those exactly. years ago with Al Capone. I guess now they want to dig this up, put it on TV, and see if it's really John Dillinger. There was initially a deal with the History Channel, um, and uh, the family had been talking about that. But when all of this kind of blew up in the fall, the History Channel backed out. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other production companies that are interested in doing this as well. But uh, it remains in the limelight, obviously. So, uh, you know, even with the History Channel pulling out, it seems as though the family still wants to move forward. Where are we as a society, Ryan? Who cares whether – I mean, first of all, like I did at the beginning, you have to introduce – the overwhelming majority of Americans to who John Dillinger is. And secondly, even if he's not there, it's not like the dude's walking around like Simi Valley, California, like Elvis is. He's, <laughs> a, he's dead. He's just someplace else, right? But we love our mobsters, don't we? Oh, I mean, sure. We, we well, love to know how the story officially ended. Right. If it doesn't, that adds even more intrigue. Right. It's like The Irishman. You know, the movie The Irishman. Where's Jimmy Hoffa buried? Who killed Jimmy Hoffa? That I'm saying Jimmy Hoffa disappeared in 1972 73 i mean that's 45 46 years ago you've got to be under 50 you got to be over 50 to know who jimmy hoffa is i mean but certain... how much but how much money is that gonna make well <laughs> well you got a whole network fox that's running with this thing and now you got the movie that's out there with this thing i guess it goes to prove that when you die you're probably going to be worth more money than when you're alive. See, when you die, Ryan, people are going to want to know, where is he buried? You know, is he really buried there? Is that his ashes over there? See, there's going to be great intrigue for all of you ABC News correspondents. And just think of David Muir when he leaves. Everybody's going to want to see, really in the ground down there? See, there's a, I guess there is a lot of money in death. Absolutely, absolutely. It's an interesting story, that's for sure. Well, I'll come looking for your remains. There's one person in this world that will make sure that you're supposed to be where you're at. How about that? If you'll do it for me, I'll do it for you. I'll, I'll try to be buried in Illinois. <laughs> I'm going to try to live forever. Uh, Ryan Burrow, thank you so much. You have a great day. Take care. Yeah, I don't know. You know, when I uh, – just make a note of this. Jimmy, when I die and, like, they drop me – just leave me alone. You know, if one of my family members wants me exhumed, just tell him I really didn't care for him all that much in the first place. Just leave me alone. I want to RIP, man. I just want to RIP. It's coming up on 1149 News Radio 700 WLW. Yeah, I mean, it, it could have been a Geraldo Rivera moment if you think about it. 
Maybe what they ought to do is, like in 50 years, exhume Geraldo's body and just see if it's really him, right? Remember that farce on the air? He's there with like a jackhammer going in there to see if it was really Al Capone's tomb. What was it? His tomb? His treasure? It was something. I don't know. Uh, here is Jim in Hamilton. You have a story about John Dillinger? Uh, yes, sir, Ken. Um, the uh, My dad was in high school when Dillinger was uh, going about his business, robbing banks and whatever. Yeah. And there was a house, or there is a house, on Route 4 in Hamilton that he said Dillinger would pull up there, I guess, while the heat was on. And the people in Hamilton wanted to know why the police chief didn't arrest him, and he's, I guess he didn't want to have anything to do with him. He said, well, until he does something here, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother him. So that would, be, that would be like his hideout in between heists. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In Hamilton. Yes, sir. What? My dad, uh, he told me that story several. Every time we'd go by that house, he'd point it out to me. I mean, now I want to go knock on the door, see what, what, what <laughs> I'm sure the people there would love that, but I mean, it's just when you... You know, you don't realize it, but all of that stuff transpired when there was no social media, there was no television news, there were no live bands or anything. So I guess it was probably easy to do that because who who's going to drop a dime on John Dillinger, right? You'll probably get plugged right. for doing that. Didn't, didn't uh, the, the, wasn't there a movie called The Lady in Red? Wasn't she supposedly? That's right. That, that was a signal to the FBI that she was with John Dillinger? How about that? How about that? Now think of all the women in red right now. What? Who are they telling? You know what I'm saying, Jim? You know what I'm saying here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, thank you, Jim. Here is Jeff in Westchester. Jeff, you're on the air, and you go right ahead. Okay, Ken. First of all, I've always enjoyed you, and it's nice that you're filling in this week. Thank you. Uh, you know, I was in the cemetery business a number of years, and for this cemetery to say that they can't examine the body or won't—it's crazy. Well, they, they got a judge. They got a judge to rule that way. That they don't have to. The judge ruled that the cemetery has the final say as to whether Dillinger's nephew can exhume the remains. Oh boy, that's, yeah, I, I just don't get that because if, if if you have a real old piece of paper, it used to say, uh, "I have a deed to a plot in Spring Grove." Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't say deed; it says, "I have interment rights." You don't own the property; you have the right to be buried in that specific specific spot. Unless Indiana law is different than Ohio law. I mean, I you know, again, I mean, for this, this was a made-for-television deal, and the Department of Health in Indiana gave its approval right. for the exhumation to move forward. It was going to be a big deal on New Year's Eve, and it was going to be a Geraldo Rivera moment. Now there's no TV thing, I think largely because the judge ruled this way. Yeah, I, I don't see how the judge can rule that because many, many times they, uh, I've had a fight with my wife, and we're not going to be buried together. I die later, and I'm putting that cemetery in Indianapolis, and all the kids get together and say, we'd like to have Dad and Mom together. Bring him back over to Spring Grove. The cemetery can't stop that. Hmm. Yeah, but, they just, I mean, I mean, there's, there used to be an organization, still is National Association of Cemeteries, and you'd get this booklet with the rules and regulations on different cemeteries are. Yeah. I've never heard of a cemetery having the authority not to allow a family to exhume a body. Because in essence, you, you own the plot. It's your, it, it's a cemetery. But what you're saying, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but you own the plot, right. and right. and because of that, it's almost a piece. Like, a, well, it is. It's a piece of property. You can do with whatever you want to do with it within the within with, the law. With human remains. That's the last line. Because human remains. I was running a cemetery down in Virginia, and a guy guy brought in a couple 
of his coon dogs that were killed by a car, and he mm. wanted to have them put in his plot. Well, it says human remains on most of the plots, uh, paperwork. But yeah. doggone it, uh, I just don't see how they can keep that from happening because if uh, 10 years later they find out that uh, I poisoned my wife, there's tests now that they didn't have decades ago yeah. that they can see if I – and they dig it up. Right. It's not right. up to the cemetery. I think what this speaks to is you can get a judge to rule anything. You can you can get oh, a judge to rule a ham sandwich is really a chicken salad sandwich, and then obviously you take it to the next level and, and appeal it, right. and that may be where this is going anyway. I don't right. know whether yeah. the TV disappearance has anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for the call. We appreciate it. But, I mean – in 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 reality, it's it, this seems like everybody at their worst moment. The nephew really doesn't care down deep. I'm guessing. I don't know. I don't know the guy, but I think down deep he was hoping for the TV money and make this TV event. The nephew has got to be. I mean, if Dillinger died at age 31 in 1934, uh, the nephew's got to be up there at a pretty pretty stout age, I would think. But I uh, but again, this is what the judge ruled and and. And, and until it goes to another court, that's what it is. But just but but think about that for a minute. Who would you? I mean, in this day and age, who would you like to see exhumed fifty years from now to see if it's really him in that grave? Because now you've got TV, you've got social media. I mean, there was that whole conspiracy about whether or not Kennedy was buried in Kennedy's grave, right? That was that whole big thing. Was it really John Kennedy? Did he get killed? Was he really killed? Was he murdered? I, you know, I think pretty much now everybody knows what happened. But when you get anybody, when you get three or four people together, you can form a conspiracy fairly easy anymore. Straight ahead, it's Bill Cunningham. Uh, Bill will have his con- uh, will have his uh, conduit to the old rugged cross. Uh, Brian Tome will be among his guests coming up here. After the news, I will see you on Saturday when we convene again at high noon right here on the home of your UC Bearcats, headed to Birmingham for New Year's Day. I bet Tony Pike's excited about that on 700 WLW. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.